0: You may be seated and I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We'll be finishing the gospel of Mark in this very uh, month. Uh, we're going to have it done, well, by the 7th of May, but uh, we, we just have a few sermons left in, in Mark's gospel. And I'm picking up the pace a little bit here at the end in Mark and style. Uh, his is the shortest and the most fast-paced gospel And I want you to see it at altitude, at scope. And so uh, we'll be looking at a a nice section of of Mark today. Um, And and I'll read it as we go along because it's such a lengthy section. And I want to just orient it for you at the outset. So what we're looking at is Mark 14. Last week we ended with the words in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives This was the Hallel songs in the Psalms. It was what Jews traditionally sang after the Passover meal. Jesus has just transformed the Passover, that celebration of of the Jewish people's exodus out of Egypt, into a commemorative meal surrounding the elements that represent his death. He, He just did that for the very first time. So the the, the Supper, the Last Supper, that famous painting of Jesus and his disciples and the betrayal of Judas, is transformed in this moment to the Lord's Supper. The Last Supper became the Lord's Supper. And we pick up the story in just... Mark is such a genius, the way he arranged this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I've talked to you about Markan sandwiches, tortas de Marco. Uh, the, it's a literary technique where you have bread, ingredients, and bread, right? A sandwich. But he does that on the page by arranging things in triads, three three parts, and showing us something in his framing of the story. So I want to show you this frame, and then we'll walk through it. The frame starts with Peter's insistence that he will not betray Jesus, that he'll never deny him, that instead he would die with him. That's verses 27 to 31. You see it there. And then that launches us into that famous scene at Gethsemane that we just sang about, that Jesus is laboring and agonizing in prayer with his full humanity on display as he struggles through his divine calling to bear the wrath of God. And that immediately, verse 43, immediately moves to a scene of Judas's prophesied betrayal that happened just paragraphs before when Jesus dipped the bread in with Judas. So then Judas is betraying Jesus by bringing this whole gang of of uh, violence to arrest Jesus. Jesus willingly allows himself to be arrested. A strange little moment where Uh, One of the followers of Jesus, one of the associates, runs away naked to escape these soldiers. And and that moves us directly to the trial that is overnight in the high priest's house. Uh, Kind of a sham trial thrown together to try to pin blasphemy on Jesus. And then this section ends the way it started with Peter's denial as he follows Jesus at too great of a distance... And before the rooster crows, Peter has denied Christ repeatedly. And so Peter is framing this scene in Mark's portrayal. Peter's assurance that he'll never deny Jesus and then ending in verses 66 to 72 as as Peter does indeed falter and fall. And what I want you to see in this section, a lengthy section that has some of the most you know crucial moments leading up to Jesus's crucifixion i want you to see the purpose that mark has in it for our instruction we are to meditate on the agony on the agony the agony of jesus's suffering we are to meditate on that but it's framed around the disciples response peter represents all of us in this story peter the the most the most vocal, the, the most forward, the most bold uh, disciple, if he could falter, if he could be overconfident in the scene of persecution and trouble and trial, and if in the end he can even fail his Lord, but it still be centered around what Jesus did for us, in preparation for calvary there's something instructive for all of us here this lesson is intended to teach disciples that they can endure persecution they can endure the the things that are to come when mark wrote this it was years had passed christians were a fledgling group that was persecuted and hounded and often treated roughly, violently, thrown in prison, sometimes killed for their faith, and increasingly so. And Mark is writing, and I think the way he arranges this, obviously the chronology is is historical, but his arrangement in putting Peter's assurance of ability to follow, that nothing would stop him, that he would easily die for Jesus, and then Peter's faltering failure, Surrounding this scene of of Jesus' human will being stretched to its maximum capacity in prayer with drops of blood in the garden, uh, along with all the machinations of Jesus' opponents arresting him and Judas' evil betrayal, all happening to teach us the, the costs of discipleship. That when difficult days come, we'll be more ready because we learned from Peter's example and because we saw what Jesus went through in the crucifixion of his soul. Because that's what's happening at Gethsemane. His his soul is being prepared for what they're about to do to his body. And before his body is killed, his soul is put before the reality of the wrath of God to be poured out on him. So... It's a beautiful arrangement that Mark has done, and I, I want to bring that out for you. So let's dive right in. The title of the sermon, if you're into those kind of things, are uh, it's Agony, Failing Loyalty, and Treacherous Kisses. Agony, Failing Loyalty, and Treacherous Kisses. That's, that's what I think is, is happening in this sweeping scene, verse 27, all the way to the end of the chapter. So let's look at it in pieces. First, Peter's Uh, denial predicted, Peter's denial predicted. Then Jesus said to them, verse 27, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to them, even if All are made to stumble, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Remember, Scripture is inspired, and every word of it penned under the influence of the Holy Spirit as the writers moved along is so important. But in a story like this that's so familiar to us, almost like a painting that we've seen a hundred times, there's details there that you don't want to miss out on. There's a word that's coming to the surface in, in Peter's strong affirmation of loyalty to Jesus that when actually tested won't hold up. Remember, it was in Luke 22 that Jesus said, Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat. The spiritual danger has been announced to Peter already and he hasn't heard it. But the the word that lifts from the surface isn't just an expose of of one of Jesus' disciples being a weak loser. That's not the point. The word that, that comes to the surface in that paragraph is in verse 27. And then it's again on Peter's lips in verse 29. And it glows in verse 31 at the end of this little paragraph. And it's the word, all. Do you see it there? Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Jesus predicts that what he's about to enter into will not be a magnificent last stand between Jesus and his disciples They will not enter into the trial together. They will not ascend the hill of Calvary beaten together. They will not go to the cross and be crucified together. But this is something that Jesus must do alone. And he sees this, Jesus sees this as the fulfillment of prophecy. From the wild eyed prophecy of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. This word from this ancient prophet that talks about the Messiah and the rescue of God's people coming through this mysterious means as he prophesies that God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And And in Jesus' human understanding and realization of the fulfillment of prophecy, it seems like all these prophecies that Jesus had read since childhood are starting to quickly surround him and be fulfilled all around him and instantly and unfoldingly like dominoes falling down one after the other. And so Jesus sees this prophecy come into clear focus, and it serves as a reminder not just of Peter's colossal overconfidence and failure. But it serves as a reminder that all of Jesus' disciples are inadequate. All of Jesus' disciples are, are unprepared. All of Jesus' disciples will fail Jesus in this hour because the isolation of the Son of Man is absolutely necessary for the salvation of these overconfident yet insecure and failing disciples. And so the text tells us that all will be made to stumble. And Peter in his overconfidence says, even if all are made to stumble, yet not, not I, Lord, I'll die with you. And Jesus tells him before morning watch, before 3 a.m., when the rooster just starts to make those rooster sounds at right before the morning light, before morning's even here, you will deny me three times. But this makes Peter double down. And he says, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then that word, all. Because all the disciples, there's 10 of them now because Judas has run off to betray. But there's another group because there's about to be a naked kid. And there was always people with the disciples. And so however small this crowd is, they all affirm that Peter represents the intentions of their heart. And in the moment of calm, before a group with clubs and swords comes, we probably think like these disciples. Yeah, I could, I could handle it. I could handle the persecution. I, I, could, I could make my stand. I could be loyal to Jesus. But know that this word, you will all fall away or you will all be caused to stumble. It's in the passive uh, voice in Greek, which means this isn't something in them that causes them to defect. This is pressure outside of them. Something outside of them will make them stumble. The persecution is not like Judas's, this rebellion that wells up from inside an evil heart. Instead, it's presumption something that we can all fall into overconfidence in ourselves instead of a willingness to follow Jesus in reliance in his strength. Jesus warns the disciples that they have to guard against this kind of presumption, one that all disciples can be most guilty of, not recognizing our weakness, being strong in our resolutions, but when we actually get to the point of persecution... We stumble. Jesus sees it as the fulfillment of prophecy, but it serves as a warning for all disciples to come, those first followers, as the church is just beginning. And even today, as there's more persecuted Christians in the world today than there ever has been. Sometimes in our country we think our experience is is normal everywhere, but there's more persecution happening now in the world towards Christians than there's ever been in the history of the world. And overconfidence and presumption rather than a a dependence on proximity and closeness to Jesus is what's in mind here. And Jesus even fortifies them by reminding them that this isn't a hopeless situation. This kind of failure isn't a Judas kind of failure. He reminds them, verse 28, after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. That's where Jesus will appear to the 500 witnesses. That's where up back north by Jesus' hometown, the earliest Christian followers, they won't get their start in Jerusalem. This ragtag group will be up north in Jerusalem, and that's where they'll gather and hear their Lord commission them to go and preach the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to the uttermost parts of the world. And so there's hope even in their failure. There's consolation in the words of Jesus and even that sounds like that same prophecy in Zechariah. Because in that same prophecy, Zechariah 13, it says God will gather his renewed flock. He'll gather his sheep. After he scatters them, when the shepherd is struck, he's going to gather, regather those sheep. And so there's hope for the failing disciples. There's hope for the disciples who, whose overconfidence was predictable Self-assertion, conceit, is not the way of the master. Instead, one of humility and dependence. When he says, even if all fall away, Jesus has already said, all will fall away. And this kind of failing is because of pressure. It's something that lots of Christians will experience, and it's one that you can come back from. This is different than apostasy, than Judas's kind of failure. This is the kind of failure that calls for repentance and that points towards the necessity of recognizing that what makes you a Christian is not your ability to be awesome, to stand up in every pressure. I mean, when Peter's finally restored, what is it that brings Peter back? Jesus says to him, Simon Peter, do you, do you love me? And so what it comes down to is, is that Peter truly loves Christ. And it's a reminder that even when we truly love Christ, we can still truly fail Him big time. And that's what's happening here. That sets up as a bridge between the intimate institution of the final meal with Jesus as His death is symbolized and commemorated, and then Peter's self-assertion and lack of humility, and Jesus' promise that this is in fulfillment of prophecy, and prophesies this will happen, this kind of failure will happen before the night is over, And so this bridge is showing that it's Jesus' own disciples who will fail him. It's Jesus' closest associates that will struggle through this the most. And therefore, Jesus' death is first and foremost for them. And so he moves to the garden. Verse 32, they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Verse 34, he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 32-42 is agony in the garden. And if Peter's overconfidence is a familiar scene, this is a far more familiar scene millions of Christian pilgrims for thousands of years have made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They've walked this same walk, and there's pretty high level of confidence it's at least the same area. Some say even the same trees. And a garden is a working place during the day. The word Gethsemane means olive press. It's kind of a play on a Hebrew word. And so it's a a, a grove of olive trees. And some of the trees that are in the the modern site of the Garden of Gethsemane are thousands of years old. Ancient, gnarly, twisted kind of olive trees. Some of them were perhaps silent witnesses to this scene of our Lord's agony. Gardens are a working place, a busy place, agricultural, economic, but at night they're quiet and restful. And this was a garden that Jesus has repeatedly gone to as a place of prayer. When Spurgeon preached on the Garden of Gethsemane in October 18, 1874, his question was, why did Jesus choose this place? Which is a good reminder of God's sovereignty, that, that Jesus is in control of all the details in a passage that is Emphasizing Jesus' humanity, his struggle within his human soul to come to terms with obedience to his Father, there's still the sovereignty of Christ in orchestrating every detail of the scene because Jesus intentionally puts himself in harm's way. I mean, he sent Judas to go and do his evil deed and betray him. And now he's going to a predictable place where he has prayed before, where they've gone at night before. He's clearly made it known. And and Spurgeon says, why did he choose this spot for his agony? Why did he choose this spot to be arrested by his enemies? And this is how he answers it. May we not conceive that, as in a garden, Adam's self-indulgence ruined us. Talking about Eden. So in another garden, the agonies of the second Adam should restore us. Gethsemane supplies the medicine for the ills which followed upon the forbidden fruit of Eden. No flowers which bloomed upon the the banks of the fourfold river were ever so precious to our race as the bitter herbs which grew hard by the black and sullen stream of Kedron. May not our Lord also have thought of David, And he describes David crossing that same brook. You see, the Garden of Gethsemane is just a half a mile from from the temple complex. It's very close. It's Jerusalem on the hill, Mount Zion. Here's Jerusalem and the temple complex. The Kidron Valley is where David would run when Absalom would chase him out of his throne and out of his kingdom. And so you have this picture of of Jesus and his disciples leaving Jerusalem where they celebrated the supper and going down this little valley. And then at the start of the Mount of Olives where Jesus spent lots of time and it becomes a point of significance in, in prophecy, he's just on the foothills of it here, this garden at the, at the very edge of the hill. He's still actually below Jerusalem. It's, it's down in the valley where this, this tree grove is. And so Spurgeon remembers when David ran through this same place, He says, our Lord Jesus is a greater David, leaving the temple to become desolate and forsakes the city which had rejected his admonitions. And with a sorrowful heart crosses the foul brook to find in solitude a solace for his woes. He goes on to talk about more reasons for Jesus choosing this this garden our Lord, he says, may also have chose the garden because needing every remembrance that could sustain him in the conflict, he felt refreshed by the memory of former hours which there had passed away so quietly. He had there prayed and gained strength and comfort. Those gnarled and twisted olives knew him well. There was scarce a blade of grass in the garden which he had not knelt upon. He had consecrated the spot to fellowship with God. What wonder then that he preferred his favored soil." Why did Jesus choose the garden? Well, maybe there was Eden imagery. Maybe it was King David pictures. But I like that reason because this was a place where Jesus had prayed so often. And more than anything else, Jesus knew what he needed. wasn't his disciples' resolution because that was going to fail, but he needed his father's assistance. The chief reason for choosing this garden, though, had to be it was a place that Judas knew. When he couldn't go to a new spot, Judas wouldn't be able to find him. And so you have the sovereignty of Christ, our Savior, who is in agony over the reality of what's about to happen to him, what he's about to endure, subject himself to, but willingly placing himself in harm's way so that he can accomplish his divine mission. That's ultimately the reason Jesus goes back to this garden scene. This moonlit garden scene, a tranquil place of trees, a place where he has prayed, a place with the history of a fleeing king, a place with garden imagery uh, as old as Genesis, but ultimately he's in this spot because Judas knows he'll be there. And Jesus aligns himself with the will of the Father even as he struggles and is tempted to find another way out. Look at his words in verse 34. My soul is is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch. Jesus' exceeding sorrow It's an unusual word. There's a a combination of difficult words here that aren't used very often in the Bible that speak of Jesus' anguish, His sorrow, the the stress He was under. He's he's so sorrowful, even to the point of death. In other words, this scene threatens to take Jesus's life. It's, it's that profound. It's that stressful. It's that difficult. And so he asks for assistance from his disciples. And, and in verse 35, he he's so overwhelmed with grief and struggle at what's before him and what he's about to endure. And it says he fell on the ground. This isn't dropping to his knees, this is falling down. Like, like a workout that just exhausts a person and they collapse. That's Jesus in this scene. He's got nothing left. He, he, he falls down on the ground. And his words of prayer to his father, verse 36, are Abba, Father. Abba is not best thought of as like a baby word for daddy, like dada. Some preachers always try to do that with it. It's not. It's just Aramaic. It's an Aramaic word for father. It's, it is a, an intimate word, a familiar word. It's a word that kids would say, but it's also a word that grown-ups would say. It's just a, what you call your dad. And so there is an intimacy there. There's not a, a baby talk thing going on. And so he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I wonder if he was thinking of Abraham lifting the knife, right? About to plunge it into Isaac. But there was another way. There was a, a, a substitute, a plan, a, a way of escape, of avoiding this this most difficult sacrifice. But he receives no answer from his Father. A reminder that even when you have intimacy with God, there are still times when the best answer to your prayer is no. He says, take this cup away. That's an image throughout the Old Testament of wrath. Because maybe you're wondering, like, why is Jesus struggling so much with his death? You know, I remember reading a book in college called The Death of Socrates. It had chapters on hemlock and chapters on his disciples and how he faced his death. And and it's Socrates' death, super famous for how stoic he was, how resolute he was, no 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 care, no worry. He just rolled in, drank the hemlock, said his profound words, and as death crept from feet to, to head, he died like a man. And so some people have seen this and thought, what's up with Jesus? Why can't he die like a man here? Why why is he in so much agony? And the answer to that is found in that word, take this cup away from me. I mean, the cup that Jesus is talking about is not just the blood that he'll shed. It's the cup that he commemorated, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Jesus' death isn't like any other death thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. When Jesus was a little boy, the Romans, the Romans crucified hundreds of people in Jerusalem. In AD 70, thousands were crucified. Same manner of death. And some screamed and some were silent. But Jesus' death is accentuated not because of the manner of death, not because of the torturous methods of execution, not because of the betrayal, not because of the timing of it. There is one reason why Jesus' death is causing such tension, and agony, and struggle, and sorrow, even to the point of death, for the Son of God. In his humanity, this is a powerful and emotive experience because the cup is always a symbol of God's wrath. Jesus is going to die and endure something that no one has ever endured, nor anyone ever could endure. Though some who die in their sins will endure just punishment under the wrath of God for their own sins for all eternity. None have ever endured the sins of all who would come to Jesus. And so what provokes Jesus' agony is the impending pouring out of God's wrath, which means a separation from God that is incomprehensible in Trinitarian language. It's incomprehensible for our finite minds. And it was incomprehensible in the humanity of Jesus to think of what He was about to endure. And ultimately, when He saw there was no other way and there was no answer to the prayer from His Father, He said, not what I will, but what you will. The disciples are sleeping three times. Jesus prays three times. And in their stupor, they just had a big meal with the cups of wine and the lamb and the Passover and the celebration. I mean, this is like, I mean, they're they're sleepy, they're groggy, they're tired. They don't understand the significance of this hour. And they look terrible in this scene, don't they? And Jesus in the final account, verse 41, says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see, Jesus sees the hour and the cup upon Him. And as He hears the rumbling of this crowd that's going to arrest Him, He knows that it's time for God to strike the shepherd. And the prayer that God would not strike the shepherd has been rejected. And so He will drink the cup of God's wrath. All of it. Every drop. He will fulfill His destiny as Messiah, as God's Son, as the divine Son of Man, as the Savior and the Redeemer of Israel, as the second Adam. He will do it alone, without His friends, He will be accused. He will be blasphemed. He will be drugged down and He will be whipped and scorned and spit on and mocked and reviled and killed. But nothing will compare to Him enduring the wrath, the perfect, holy, just wrath of God on perfect Jesus who never sinned, not once, who never disobeyed his Father, who always was perfectly obedient, not what I will, but what you will. And so the clamoring crowd arrives in verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The same three groups that had been confronting Jesus all the while now have sent their representatives, the muscle with, with weapons, they're armed, they're dangerous. They're in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. They were scared to arrest Jesus before because of his favor with the crowds. They're doing it under the, under the darkness with Judas by their side. Verse 44, Now his betrayer had given him them a signal, an agreed-upon signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Oh, teacher, teacher. These false wounds, this sign of affection, which is actually a sign of poisonous betrayal, comes from Judas. And as soon as Judas does this to the Lord, right up to his face, kisses him on the cheeks, calls him teacher, teacher, the whole gang jumps Jesus and grabs him. Verse 47 is an interesting version of the story by Mark. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I have no idea how you cut off somebody's ear with a sword. Are they running away? Like, Is it like that kind of move? Is he left-handed? I thought about it a lot this week. I got no answers. I mean, it was some kind of swing and a miss, right? Foul ball, Something. Mark calls him one of the ones standing by. John says, it was Peter. (laughs) You know, I I don't know why Mark did it that way. Probably because he's trying to frame the story with Peter on both sides. And he thought, Peter doesn't need any more on this. To sow a French painter who studied under Degas he painted the scene it's, it's a favorite of mine I've looked at it a bunch of times this week uh, it's, it's Malchus's ear being chopped off it's a real awkward kind of sword blow which it would have had to be to cut off somebody's ear and not their head and in the scene you see kind of everybody around moving like this about to lop it off Luke's account John's account reminded that Jesus put a stop to it just as He did in Mark. Verse 48, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take Me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize Me, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. What the other evangelists do is they remind us that Jesus interrupted the scene with His authoritative voice. A whole crowd of gangsters has come with their weapons of war to arrest one peaceful man who has never done an act of violence on anyone except the devil. And Jesus is the one that stops this violent scene from turning. And he heals Malchus. It says his name was Malchus. heals his ear with a touch. I often wonder when I look at that Malchus painting because there's some church tradition that says Malchus it's some weird Gnostic stuff so you can't buy into it totally but I'm still allowed to wonder did Malchus become a disciple later on? It's so often those who were healed by Jesus did. So I think about that. I don't know. But Jesus is arrested. And then like the weirdest thing in all of Mark is verse 51, right? Right? What what kind of scene is this? A certain young man followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body and young men laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. The only other time this happens in the Bible is the Potiphar story where uh, Joseph runs off because that lady's trying to grab him. I don't think that's what's being paralleled here. Other people have said, well, this is obviously like a signature of the artist. And so they say, this is Mark. He's putting himself in there like he was just a young follower. He, he was in the scene. I don't know, maybe. Lots of people believe that, but there's no reason to believe that except for what I just told you, that maybe it's Mark. Maybe it's anybody. There is something, though, I think that's thematic here and important. And I don't think it's like the shame of the Garden of Eden and nakedness and, and that kind of thing. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something there. But I think the point isn't isn't the, the corollary to the Garden of Eden or that this is a signature from the Gospel writer. I think this is just another reminder that everybody abandoned Jesus. And it just so happened that this young man was the most shamed because he took off into the night with no clothes on. And so there is shame in this scene. But the shame is the the further betrayal and abandonment of the Lord. Nobody is staying with Him. Verse 50, They all forsook Him and fled. This isn't just those immediate circle of disciples. This is everyone. And now Jesus will face the Sanhedrin alone. Verse 53, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with Him were assembled all the chief priests and elders and scribes. But Peter followed Him at a distance. Too far to be of service to his Lord. Too far to be associated with Jesus. He's following him from a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. This is his, his personal residence. He sat with the servants and warned himself by the fire. Peter is far from Jesus and close to the enemies of Jesus. He's just trying to blend in. Verse 55, the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death but found none for many bore false witness against him but their testimonies did not agree. There's just confusion in this sham trial. This is the religious trial. This is the the Jewish trial. Verse 57, some rose up and bore false witnesses against him saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands and within three days I'll build another made without hands. They're just confusing what Jesus said. But even their testimony did not agree, verse 59. And so the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? In verse 61, he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus, in the face of all these liars and false witnesses, has the most brief of sermons that He gives. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Awesome. Jesus says that He is the Christ. Now, calling yourself the Christ, the Messiah, technically, was not blasphemy. Plenty of people who had claimed messianic titles and not been crucified for it. And so they're going to find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, verse 64. The high priest tears his clothes, his inner garment, a sign of like deep consternation. What further need do we have of witnesses? Because the witnesses weren't lined up anyway. They were a mess. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. The sham trial, this was what they had from the start. Six chapters ago, they'd already decided this is what they were going to do. And then verse 65, they began to spit on him and blindfold him and beat him. And say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. You know, trials are supposed to be about justice, but this trial is a mockery, a mockery of justice. Trials are supposed to be about evidence and, and witnesses, and these evidence and witnesses are all over the place and they're a mess. Trials are supposed to be about the vindication of the innocent and the punishment of the guilty. And here, everything is reversed because the innocent one is punished and the guilty ones are free for now. Because Jesus' warning in verse 62 is actually a warning about their future. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This little sham trial will lead up to a greater trial where all of Jesus' accusers, blasphemers, and enemies will stand before God, the judge in heaven, and sitting at his right hand will be Jesus, the righteous one, the one who was accused, the one who was accused of blasphemy, but the one who was actually blasphemed. I mean, Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The high priest says it's blasphemy. It's actually the fulfillment of prophecy. And as this trial closes, they beat Jesus and strike him and mock his prophetic greatness. And meanwhile, in the courtyard outside, there's another trial happening. Look at it briefly. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, just a little girl, like a little slave girl, literally, sees Peter warming himself by the fire and says, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again pestering him and began to say to those who stood by, hey, he's one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter, again, again, Peter, who's following at a distance, Peter, who wants to be there, who talked a big game, but is now like lurking in the shadows trying to figure out what's going to happen, unwilling to intervene because of fear and unwilling to identify himself with his Lord, much less die with his Lord, much less be beaten and accused of blasphemy. He is now denying he even knows him because the final denial is surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean. He's got a a Galilean accent, your speech shows it. And Peter, verse 71, curses and swears and says, I don't even know the man of whom you speak. And the rooster crows again. And Peter obviously remembers what Jesus had said. And Peter bursts into tears. Not the tears of Judas, the betrayer, But the tears of a disciple, someone who loved Jesus truly. Some of us know what it's like to be in Peter's shoes. To really know him and really love him and yet be cowardly before him. Jesus is so merciful to Peter in his restoration. But Peter realizes the mistake he made and he weeps. And I think this entire chapter is intended to be set here before all disciples in perpetuity for us to not be Peter-like and say, I can do it. But to be warned by Peter's lessons that remind us that the basis for our confidence is only what Jesus has done. Trusting in Him following Him closely, looking to Him for grace, knowing that only Jesus can make us right with God. Only Jesus can stand in that darkest trial in our defense. Only Jesus can overcome and help us to endure and set us in the right place. And before Jesus goes to Calvary, which we'll look at that passage next time, before He even goes there, Mark instructs all the disciples that will follow. To follow Jesus closely and carefully. To give that confession of loyalty to Jesus, not false loyalty. To never be affiliated with the traitor's kisses, but know the agony of Christ Caused him to renew and resolve his obedience to his father. These scenes all weave together with Peter on both sides make us stop and ask ourselves, what sort of disciples are we? Talk a big game, fall asleep two seconds later, fall asleep again, fall asleep again affiliated with all the betrayal in this dark garden of suffering, we're reminded that Jesus did everything necessary to make us right with God, that our strength is insufficient. His sacrifice is the only thing that's sufficient, that as Christians, we will be called to suffer for Jesus. And we prepare for that day, not with a sense of overconfidence or of self-reliance, but aware that the one who redeemed us and went to the cross on on our behalf, so that all creation would be made new, so that this garden scene would overwhelm and overcome that first garden seed where Adam failed, Jesus would not fail, and we're called to live in the midst of this same kind of confusion, same kind of attack on Jesus, constantly blasphemed, and we need to stand with Him, follow Him closely, not because of us, but because of what Jesus did. And what Jesus did was obey His Father perfectly. Ensuring that His will would be done. And without it, we wouldn't have hope. And we wouldn't be saved. Father, thank You for this garden scene. A scene of difficulty to even take it all in because of what Your Son endured for us. To see His soul crucified before His body. To see His closest associates and disciples abandon him, makes us check our own hearts, our own loyalty to the Son of God, and to be more reliant on him, the one who forgave us and died in our place. Thank you for Jesus, for the salvation that he accomplished, that he alone could accomplish. In his matchless name, amen.